everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. This is episode number 92. Um, my name is Gabe Estel, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dennis Levi-Leach and Jonathan Getz. How's it going, guys? Great. Great. We're recording, we're recording this on Memorial Day, so happy Memorial Day to everyone. Yes. Hope uh, hope you enjoyed it, and uh, thanks for all of those who, who served. Um, tonight, we are going to be serving up you, though, the latest batch, the 2018 version of the chew-ins uh if you you haven't heard a chew-in episode before i'll give you a little bit uh of the rundown here um all three of us if i could speak for all three of us guys probably have some ambivalence on the rock and roll hall of fame i would say um you know we certainly um a lot of artists we value uh and that are important to popular music are, are certainly in there but a lot of artists that that we love a lot aren't, uh, and, and and it's likely with this sort of kind of gatekeeper mentality that the people behind the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have. It's likely that a lot of great musicians will never get in to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, about th- uh, three years ago, uh, we decided to start our own Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we call these the Chew Ins. Okay. Uh, we've had each of us nominates a, uh, or I should say, inducts uh, an artist every year. Uh, we've had some good ones so far. Um, uh, you can check previous episodes for those. We'll post the links to the previous episodes as well. You know, we've inducted everybody from Kevin Kinney to the Marshall Tucker Band to DJ Quick. Um, uh, you know, Faith No More, Mud Honey. You know, you can you can you can go down the list here. There's been nine inductees so far, and tonight I'm very excited to say that we have three new un- inductees, uh, all great picks, and uh, all um, really excited to just just welcome them to to the hall, uh, to our hall. So, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started on those. Um, I'll, I'll go with mine first, guys. We'll just we'll just start alphabetically here. Um, my uh, my inductee tonight is a band that I uh, it's it's not one of those bands you get into like when you're a teenager, you know, like an American teenager probably, or even you might not necessarily be exposed to even even you know I, I didn't even hear them really in my college years. I'd heard the name, but it starts for me with a guy that um he's not in the band but i say that it was kind of my indirect introduction to this band and that's nick drake now pause for a second nick drake is not my nominee all right but um you know i first heard nick drake um uh, about i don't know probably around 1999 2000 so you know almost 20 years ago did you hear him before or after the volkswagen commercial um, you know, I guess I, I, I'd never seen the Volkswagen commercial. I heard about him because one of our favorite bands, the Black Crows, always uh, Rich Robinson, their guitarist, um, cited them him as an influence. And I had heard uh, the Crows back in 97, they did Black Eyed Dog instrumental, which if you, if you ever get it, if you get a chance to stream that, it's from, I sound really geeky here, it's from Deer Creek 97. And it's fucking phenomenal. Uh, it's haunting is what it is. It's just rich on an electric guitar with Black Eyed Dog. Um, so that was kind of like my introduction to Nick Drake. And I, I picked up like, you know, uh, Fade to Blue or um, um, it was like a greatest hits kind of way, way to blue. Yeah. Way to blue. And then I just I bought everything after that. And I, I know you guys love him as well. And um, he's just 
a master of the open G. Um, and I, you know, as I started to learn more about, about Nick Drake, um, you know, some people's names kept popping up, uh, people that like he was kind of associated with, or, you know, musicians that he looked up to, they looked up to him, vice versa, some people that he played with and, um, a band that kept coming up, um, was Fairport, Fairport convention. Um, and Fairport convention is my inductee. So I'm proud to intro, uh, induct them tonight. Um, and, and another guy that keep, kept coming up who was in Fairport convention was a while by the guy named Richard Thompson, um, who, uh, is, is still going strong and really, really putting out good music still as well. You can probably recognize him for his famous beret that he always wears. Um, but for Fairport convention, for me, their music was kind of like, it's kind of like medieval blues is how I would best describe it. Um, they, 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 they get, you know, the label that they, they get most often is probably folk rock. Uh, and that's true to a certain degree, I think. Um, but the, the, the Fairport Convention to me is kind of like if the birds took more of an influence from Chaucer rather than Bob Dylan, you know, if they if they took more of their if they took if they took more of their influence from like the Canterbury Tales as opposed to the Free Will and Bob Dylan, you know, um, and there's a bluesy element too. So you know, along with um, a band called Pentangle, um, Pentacle, um, and Alex Alexis Costner, another guy, you know, they kind of merged Fairport Convention, kind of merged this folk baroque, uh, which you know, involved a lot of finger picking with sort of American blues and American folk in the late sixties. And they really created this whole kind of movement of British folk rock, uh, which, which took shape, you know, in, in the late sixties, uh, in, in England. And, uh, it was certainly more akin to, you know, the countryside than the city. And I so think to speak. In, the, in the United States, I think that type of music was kind of a regional thing. I yeah, know right. growing, growing up in Illinois, I was not exposed to a lot of, a Fairport Convention or Pentangle. Um, sure, yeah. Moving to Colorado and going to lots of thrift stores and garage sales, they were very popular out here. Yeah, that, okay. That's that style of music, that you know the the yeah. easy folk rock type stuff seems to have gone over really well here because I I come across the records quite quite often. Yeah, a little more of a pastoral feel in Colorado yeah. too, you know, so that. Yeah. The landscape uh, atmosphere probably has something to do with it. Um, but, you know, that movement of folk rock, um, that really gave us, uh, you know, it kind of spawned people like Nick Drake, John Martin, uh, Burt Janch, who's phenomenal, who was in, in Pentangle as well. And it even laid the groundwork for later. I mentioned the Canterbury Tales from Chaucer, um, the Canterbury scene, which was kind of a little more closely linked to Prague. But it's kind of an offshoot of that too. And when, yeah. I, when I say the, when I say the Canterbury scenes, I'm talking about bands like Soft Machine and Gong and Caravan, right. uh, which I, are all great bands too. So I, I recommend everybody check them out. In addition to Fairboy Convention, I think you could like lend the term acoustic prog to yeah, to, yeah. To the, because, That's a, yeah. You know, I, I, they they do they encompass the medieval aspects of the prog music, and they pair it with like the acoustic folk medieval mm -hmm. instruments and stuff. yeah. Right. It's like a it's like if you, you know, walked into a pub in England and, you know, like like, you know, in medieval times and like Joni Mitchell was sitting there singing, you know, it's like it's like that. Um, but excuse me, um, with Fairpoint, that guy might have been the first belch on air. Sorry about that, guys. No, um, I beat you to but it. But anyway, OK, just tonight. But, you know, um, Fairport Convention, you know, at least to most 
kind of sound like your typical FM kind of radio classic rock fan. You know, they don't have the name recognition as a lot of other popular groups of the 70s, but their influence, I think, was very strongly felt on some of the most recognizable work by Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, Yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. All of those bands incorporated a lot of the elements that bands like Pentangle and Fairport Convention were doing, particularly Zeppelin. Um, if you listen to a song like Battle of Evermore, you know, um, or Bronyar Stomp, you know, I mean, if you listen to those tunes, that's that's got Fairport Convention, I think. And that whole that whole scene that came a little before some of those bands that I just mentioned, uh, that's got that whole scene written all over it. And with with fair, you know, Levi mentioned Levi said medieval and and, and that's kind of one of the, the first terms that comes to mind for me, because, you know, a lot of bands of the 60s. Um, British bands, you know, went really bluesy, you know, it's kind of the American influence. So they went, you know, kind of very psychedelic. Whereas, you know, Fairport Convention's like, hey, let's go back a few centuries, right? <laughs> let's 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 find some influences right. there. And their first record, which is self-titled, um, kind of had those more American influences, like, you know, the Birds, Buffalo Springfield, Joni Mitchell. But then on their second record, um, which is actually my favorite, called What We Did on Our Holiday, came out in 1968, uh, 68 or 69, I I believe. Um, That's when Sandy Denny arrived. And uh, she wasn't, they had another female um, vocalist on their first record named Judy Dibel, I believe is her name. Uh, But Sandy Denny came along and really, I think, along with Richard Thompson really created like the fair, you know, what, what we kind of defined as like the fair point, fair point sound. Um, and if you, I, I, I won't, I won't go into details tonight, but you know, Sandy Denny, pretty tragic life. If you ever get a chance to look anything up about her, it, uh, it uh, unfortunately wasn't a pretty picture. Uh, she died in 1978, um, after, after several kind of rough years. Um, but, you know, their, their, their fourth LP, uh, which is the one that, you know, kind of one of those albums that makes like top 500 lists and it's considered their opus is Legion Leaf um, from from 69. And that was actually born out of uh, a tragedy. I don't know if you guys know this, like Legion Leaf, they had they had recorded some of it um, and there was a really bad car accident. Everybody but Sandy Denny was in this van Um and their their driver, like who was like the roadie as well, was drunk. And you know, it was like late after a gig, and like you know, I think everybody, you know, everybody was pretty much asleep, but him. And he got in a wreck, and their drummer got killed. Uh, Martin Lamble, I believe, was his name, and then also Richard Thompson's girlfriend at the time were killed was killed as well. <laughs> and this was this was right right around the time I think they were recording or they were about to record Legion Leaf. And so, you know, kind of out of that tragedy, they got a new drummer and and, um, you know, the, the their their masterwork is sort of born out of that because it was, you know, they went to this house out in the country and and recorded it. And uh, it it really, you know, it really kind of brought brought their influences together with the Sandy Denny bringing um, very traditional influences Whereas all the other guys in the group were, were kind of more bent on kind of the American sound. But Sandy Denny was like, I'm going to sing these songs that are 500 years old, you know, and they're like, what? And and she did it. And like they were all kind of blown away. Um, so. So, yeah, I think Sandy Denny, you know, I'm kind of inducting her as well, um, just because I, I think she's such a, a pivotal, pivotal figure for them. Um, it, you know, for the other work, uh, they're other they're still together as well. And even 
like even though he's not in the band, Richard Thompson will come every once in a while and do reunion shows with him. So it seems like a really cool kind of collective of people. Um, if a, a couple other before I, I pass the baton, a, a couple other um, I mentioned Legion Leaf. What we did on our holiday is great. Unhalf bricking in full house. So there's like about a four album stretch there that are just all just really great works. Um, and uh, Sandy Denny is an on full house and it's Richard Thompson's last album with them. Uh, so it's a bit of a transitional work, but it's, it's still really great as well. And, and then, you know, they kept recording. They, in the, in the mid seventies, um, you know, Sandy Denny left for an album or two, Richard Thompson left a couple of the other guys left and they formed a band that's called steel eye span, uh, which is, which are good too. So their their mid seventies stuff kind of reminds me more of like kind of Poco and the Eagles, you know. It kind of is a little more of that kind of California kind of I don't know folk folky country kind of sound. Um, but but those four records that I just mentioned, starting from what we did in our holiday to Full House, are are great works uh, and just a really just a great output in a very short amount of time for a band. I mean, all, all what I just described, like came out, all four of those records came out in like less in like two years from like, basically like, I think actually less than two years. So they did it back then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, they shit. I mean, I think they put out like three albums in 1969, you know, I mean, it was like just insane, like how prolific they were. Um, and, uh, and, and like I said, you know, they still tour. Um, last thing I'll, I'll, um, I'll mention is I think Jonathan and I once had a conversation about kind of knowing how cool people are when you hear what bands they're into, you know? So if like somebody says the Beatles, the stones, the who pink Floyd or Zeppelin, you're like, okay, you know, I, I guess that's a start. Right. And then when that person says, you know, they're into the kinks, they're into the faces, they're into humble pie or they're into free. You're like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. So if they say they're into Fairport convention, Pentangle or John Martin, you need to get that person's phone number. All right. Um, so that's kind of what I'll leave it on. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're in that, in that, you know, like the people in the know, not to say like Fairport convention didn't achieve some popularity, but like, you know, um, the, you know, there, there's something that, uh, if you've never heard them or you never got into them, uh, it'll be a real joy when you do. And for me, it was, you know, a little bit later in life, but so that's, that's my, uh, that's, that's my inductee Fairport convention. Yeah, excellent choice, Gabe. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you. You mentioned John Martin. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Martin was, for the people out there that don't know, was a great acoustic guitar player, singer-songwriter, oh, yeah. and a uh, friend of Nick Drake. And mm-hmm. uh, he was also one of the main influences of the artists I'm going to be inducting tonight. Good segue. Yeah, all right. And uh, that artist is a man by the name of Michael Hedges. And Michael Hedges was born in Sacramento and raised in Oklahoma. He went to college and studied classical guitar, classical guitar composure, composition, um, and basically kind of like played around gigs while he was in college to kind of pay his way. And um, what what he would probably be most known for is kind of I'm not going to say he was the inventor, but he was one of the first people to ever be on mass produced records doing like percussive slap harmonics, mm-hmm. on guitars, doing um, right handed hammer ons, um, 
pretty much almost always exclusively used alternate tunings. Mm -hmm. um, some of them really strange. Some of them, you know, you couldn't find in tuning books. And um, he he got noticed playing one of these gigs right out of college by um, William Ackerman, who is the owner and founder of the uh, Wyndham Hill record label. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of known for being a new age music label, especially at that time. You know, they had like George Winston was their big draw at that time. And it's very, you know, new age ambient piano music. And mm -hmm. uh, so they signed him and um, his first two records are all instrumental. Uh, the first one from 1981 is called Breakfast in the Field. And the second one from 1984 is called Aerial Boundaries. Both are mm -hmm. excellent records. Um, they they were pretty much considered like monumental and groundbreaking at the time they came out. Just for some of the stuff that I mentioned, the the techniques and things he was doing, which which a lot of you know some people on the surface would look at stuff like that as kind of like parlor tricks or like. I, I think sometimes people look at guitars who do that kind of a thing as like they're trying to cover up that they're not as good as maybe at composing or like they're they're trying to make up for some area of their, you know, and, and it wasn't that for him at all. He could compose anything. And it, it was I think one of the lines he used in an interview one time was that he was a not a guitarist who composes. He was a composer who happened to play the guitar. Mm. And so he, he felt he had to use all of that to create the sounds he was hearing in his head. And um, one of the things kind of about him, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's OCD or what, but he, he insisted upon like the precise duration of sounds and silences when he would perform his pieces. Like, and, um, you know, I think that lends to... To, to the classical musician, you know what I mean? Right. Most classical musicians are very picky like that. And um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to say he ever resented the fact, but I, I'm not sure he completely liked being associated as maybe being New Age. I, mm -hmm. I don't think he really agreed with that label. When asked in interviews what, what kind of music he played, um, he gave a lot of different answers. Here's a few. Um one reporter who told he played heavy mental. <laughs> That's um, well put. He told another he played new edge. Um, acoustic thrash was one he called it. <laughs> and then my favorite was he told a reporter one time that asked what kind of music he played. He said, I play deep tissue gladiator guitar. He strings together words nicely. <laughs> yeah, those are all... Those are all pretty apt descriptions. And, and uh. so um, 1984, he got the opportunity to open up for the Jerry Garcia band on a tour. Mm -hmm. And so after that tour, um, he kind of insisted with, with Will Ackerman that he wanted his next record to be able to show some of his lyrics and he wanted to be able to sing on it. And so... His, you know, his first records, I think, had sold well enough to where they decided, you know, that was okay. They would they would let him do that. And so um, in 1985, his third album called Watching My Life Go By, which was my first introduction to him. Oh. Um, his first album with lyrics and singing, it came out. And um, 
once once he started releasing songs with lyrics, you got to also kind of see the playful side of him because he was excellent at choosing covers. Um, I have the Watching My Life go by right here on CD, and um, he does All Along the Watchtower on this. And um, he has a live CD. Uh, it's called Live on the Devil Planet. And it, it, he does uh, Prince's... And Sheila E's uh, Love Bazaar. He does like a really cool version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was he was a really really I don't know the word to just a very unique performer. It, you could, there's not tons of footage of him on YouTube or anything. Um, right. You can find some of it, but you can see that like he could command a crowd just yeah. by the way. Because I mean, you are if you think about it, that it's kind of it's kind of almost naked to be up there just you and your acoustic guitar you don't have a whole band behind you to fall back on you know any any mistake you make is out in the open because it's just you you and that guitar and um some other big influences of his besides john martin were the beatles obviously and uh like as far as classical he was into stravinsky and uh is it verese verese and uh one of the other things he was known for was he did a short tour with Leo Kotke. Oh, okay. They would play... Uh, each Seems like two, a good pairing. Yeah, yeah they, would, they would each do a solo set, and then they would come together at the end and play together. And I guess some of those performances for the people that were live there, they said that it was just, like, amazing, mind-blowing and stuff. And it was at a time when, you know, there wasn't a lot of video recording and things like that. Sure. So there's just a couple... There's a couple videos you can find of that. Um, unfortunately, in 1997, he uh, was coming home from visiting, I think, a girlfriend on the East Coast. And he lived in Mendocino County. And he was driving on the highway, and the road was slick. And he slid off an embankment and went down into a ravine and got ejected from the vehicle and passed away. Um I don't think he was found for a few days after, um, and it was it was a shock to the uh, the acoustic guitar world. You know, he had won like you know lots of guitar world polls and you know things of that nature, and so it was yeah. a pretty you know I, in 1997 did it make my radar? No, um, but I, his loss was felt in the community for sure. And I, I th- yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I just was going to wrap it up with saying that I think it really would have been interesting to see where he was going to take it all because it seemed like, you know, it was all culminating to something else, too. You know, I mean, he a lot of his music and compositions, they evolved. And so it would have been neat to see where it all evolved to. You know? and, and I assume, you know, died in 97, two people that became names after that that I heard at least in a sound were, and I so I'd wonder if he'd become, he would have become a fixture in the jam band scene or an influence. Cause like, you know, Tim Reynolds and Keller Williams, like to me, you know what I mean? Keller Williams wrote a song about him. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean like, it's like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, like those, those two seem like he had a big influence on them. You know, I mean, I don't know about Tim Reynolds, if Tim Reynolds ever cited him as an influence, but it, this to me, it sounds like it's there. Um, so yeah. I, if he, if he would have, you know, if he would have stuck around, um, 
Keller yeah, Williams. I wonder. I wonder if he would have become a part of that scene. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it would have been interesting because yeah, that would have been the time when like a lot of the new age labels were dying out. So yeah. if he would have wanted to maybe continue evolving his touring career, that might have been the group he could have latched onto. Sure. You know? Um, the song that Keller Williams wrote, if you want to hear the tribute to him, is called "Not of This Earth." Mm. Okay. Cool. Good deal, man. And I, I, I had to admit, you know, I, I had to look up the guy when Levi told me. I'm like, oh shit, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed. I've never heard that guy. Heard of that guy? And I went to his, you know, like just like his Wikipedia page, like all the accolades. Like Townsend was like talking about him, like said he was awesome. Like Bonnie Raitt, you know, all these these great players. Um, we're just we're just saying how 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 awesome he was, and I listened to that. Uh, I got to listen to his first record, uh, and it's it's great, man. Really, really, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome stuff. I you know both your uh, inductees gave me an excuse to listen to a lot of music I'd never listened to before, so uh, I'm appreciative of that. Also, I think like Levi's guy could have fit in like Fairport Convention too. You know what I mean? Like adding yeah. adding him like that would have been whoa. Yeah. Like yeah. So, hey, Fairport Convention still tours, um, and uh, maybe they could they could work in some Michael Hedges numbers. I don't know, but anyway. Well, here's a segue for you. My inductee would probably not fit into Fairport Convention very well. <laughs> um, I'd like uh, to see him try, though. I, I, I'm, he, I'm sure he could he could handle his own, but he would have to morph a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, my inductee, uh, just to give you a bit of a teaser, is somebody who I came in um, to my musical life when I was about 15. And honestly, when he did, I thought it was going to be just like for a blip on the radar and like and that was going to be it. Um, because it was for a very specific reason and actually just a specific song. And I'll come back to that, though. Uh, but my inductee is uh, bass player extraordinaire Mike Watt. Uh, Mike Watt is a uh, founding, men- uh, founding member of the Minutemen and Firehose, uh, along with uh, his, his own solo projects and uh, several, several other uh, projects with um, uh, uh, various people. You know, it's, it's kind of um, a rotating cast of some of the same people and then with other people mixed in. So. Uh, but, uh, Watt is kind of most revered for his work with the uh, 1980s punk band, the Minutemen, who I mentioned, uh, they got their start in Southern California and survived, you know, kind of a sometimes reluctant, reluctant punk scene, possibly because of their, they have, they had a lot of jazz prog influences. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So the, the yeah, punk, they were like, it was like they, were they didn't sound like, like Black Flag. No, well, yeah, no. Right? yeah. It was like they weren't up to be labeled like punk and have all the punk punk kids there. Yeah, right. But, but they were like too punky to play at like rock shows and stuff. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so there was a bit of backlash there at some of the shows. Uh, you can watch a. There's a, a documentary on the Minutemen on YouTube. It's called We Jam Econo. Uh, and there's, you, you know, the, 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 the crowds that spit on them, which I don't know, some <laughs> punk shows can Jeez. be a, a blessing, but, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, this was not the case here. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was uh rough, rough going at some gigs, but you know, mostly they, they were gaining an audience and, and they were, uh, ultimately signed by SST records who, um, after black flag, uh, their, their second, uh, roster, uh, member was the Minutemen. Um, so in early Minutemen songs were like rarely longer than 90 seconds and <laughs> their 15 song right. debut LP 
clocks in at a very 21st century attention span accommodating 17 minutes. <laughs> uh, they, uh, the Minutemen released four studio albums and several EPs uh, until lead singer uh, D. Boone uh, died in a car wreck in 1985. Um, and uh, while I appreciate the Minutemen and, and uh, hugely important records like Double Nickels on a Dime, uh, admittedly, I'm kind of more partial to Watts' uh, post-Minutemen career, which continued with a band called Fire Hose, not Firehouse. And uh... <laughs> what's so funny, you can find Fire Hose videos on the Firehouse band's Bebo on YouTube. No way. Yes. Yeah. I noticed that. That's in hilarious. And doing some listening for the show. Wow. <laughs> so, but uh, so Firehose included uh, Minimum drummer George Hurley and uh, a singer named Ed Crawford who uh, came over from Ohio and uh, joined the group, uh, had some songs. He basically, like a little story about him, he like begged to be in the band. Yeah. Yeah. He like basically contacted Mike Watt and like basically kept pestering. He looked up Watt in the phone stuff. book. And then, like, flew there, <laughs> then looked him up, and then was like, hey, I'm going to be was he, what Was he just, like, a big Minutemen fan, I guess? He was. Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Camp- he, supposedly, the story goes that Camper Van Beethoven lied to him, and they were, like, yanking his chain and said that Watt wanted to form another band. And uh-huh. uh, I don't know why they would do that. Like, Watt is grieving and, like, was considering not, you know, forming another band and retiring from music. And, and uh, Ed's like, okay, well, that's my end. I'm going to go do it. Um, but uh, it worked out. An excellent drummer too, and like the the annals of punk drummer history, dude. That guy's got chops. That guy can play. He's a beast. He's a beast, yeah. absolutely. Um, and you know whether it be uh, the Minutemen work, uh, which you know it really evolved over time. Uh, early on, like I said, it was those f- you know thirty second songs, fifty second songs. Um, but there was some funky stuff going on in the songs by the, yeah. by, by the end of the repertoire, you know, their, their last album, it was, it was getting a lot more elaborate. Um, and, uh, with a bit of a prog inf- influence too, they were, um, big fans of Blue Oyster Cole, uh, go figure. And, um, so that started to show on their, on their last album. I'll come back to that though. Um, uh, but the fire hose stuff was definitely more alternative and poppy, uh, than the Minutemen stuff, but it, Watts' songwriting and, and his bass stylings were undeniably the connection between the two projects. You could tell that there was a relation uh, without even knowing the names of the band members. But Firehose went on to release five LPs. They played nearly a thousand gigs before yeah. uh, they disbanded in '94, um, and it was in and it was around this time that I was finally introduced to Mike Watt and. Uh, and in 94, 95, I was just like a Pearl Jam obsessed nerd. And uh, and anything that remotely connected to Pearl Jam that was coming out, I was I was on top of. And uh, and, and I was told about this track called uh, Against the 70s that 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 was going to come out. And uh, Eddie Vedder was going to sing on it. But it was with this cast of characters who I didn't know who they were. It was this, it was going to be on this on Mike Watts first solo record. And, uh, and that's all I knew. And, and I remember hearing it for one of the first times in subway in Petersburg, uh, for some <laughs> reason, you know, you, you can remember where you were and, and, uh, and, and to hear it. And I was, I was hooked, man. It's a hell of a song. First of all, like oh, it's undeniably, yeah. you know, a hell of a song. It's, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's no like bending over backwards to appreciate it, you know, just because, you know, there was a relation there to Pearl Jam and I, and I wanted to like it. Like it was, yeah, it ripped. Yeah. Um, do you guys remember when it came out? No. Yeah, I bought it. I mean, I, I seemed, my I was drawn to it, I think, in the same manner you were, you know. Um, so I bought Ball Hog or Tugboat in 95. And I didn't really know because I I'd heard against the 70s, too. And I thought, I'm like, God, I heard it on the radio. I remember like WQLZ played it just because mm-hmm. just because there was a connection to Eddie Vedder, mm-hmm. essentially, you yeah. know. And uh, I was like, whoa, man, that song kicks ass. I got to go My- get that. I got to go get that. And then I open up the CD. And, and sorry, but I I, uh, I open up the CD and like like the amount of people on it is insane. You're like 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 the Beastie Boys are on it and like 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 I think Billy Corgan's on it and like like I don't Dave, know if he's Dave on Grohl, Flea, Zihas on it, Evan Grohl, Dando, Flea. yeah, Jay Mascus, Bernie uh, Morell, Nel- yeah, Henry yeah, Rollins, just, yeah, like I was I like Dave like Perner, I could pick it up, wow, yeah, yeah, like dude. The meat puppets, yeah. yeah. Dave Perner, yeah. It's it, it, it yeah, dude. Get it, there, yeah. My, Jay Mascus, my first yeah. introduction to the world of Mike Watt or to the world of Firehose would have been in 2001. I got a CD by a band called Widespread Panic called "Don't Tell the Band," and there's a song on there called "Sometimes," which mm. is a Firehose song. Yeah. It's a phenomenal song too. Yeah, I mean it's it's a totally hooky song. It could be a single. You know, yeah, widespread. Uh, I always yeah. thought it was at first. I thought it was a panic song. Sure. Until yeah. later when I saw like the like the the credits for the lyrics and stuff, and I was like, "Huh." Admit it. Yeah, that was the first time I had heard sometimes as well. Uh, mm. Absolutely. Uh, I'll come back to that. Back to um, back to ball hog or tugboat. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, I, I thought it was gonna be a one hit wonder sort of album, and and I would only listen to it against the '70s, but. Um, you know, Big Train, Chinese Fire Drill, Maggot Brain. There's a, there's a version of Funkadelic's Maggot Brain on here. Uh, 12 minutes long. Like I said, it's got Bernie Worrell on keys. Um, and uh, 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 and the guitar player is uh, uh, none other than, uh, who's the guy from Wilco? Sorry. Nels Klein, right? Nels Klein, thank you. Yes, yeah. slipping my mind there. Um, yeah. Uh, and it absolutely rips. And yeah. so as a result, like this, this stayed in my, my six disc CD changer cartridge for, for, uh, many months. And, um, then came, uh, a couple years later, 98 came contemplated in the engine room, uh, which was kind of a self-described punk rock opera, uh, about the Minutemen and, and Mike Watt's dad's time in the Navy and even his hometown of Pedro. Uh, and shortly thereafter, he went on a tour uh, with uh, Mudhoney uh, in 98, and they played the Metro. And I got tickets uh, to go see uh, Mudhoney and, and Mike Watt at the Metro. Um, touring with Mike Watt was Nels Klein and Stephen Hodges uh, for this. Um, uh, basically, they're playing, they were going to play Contemplate in the Engine Room in its oh, entirety. Oh, Stephen, 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 Stephen Hodges? Who's Stephen Hodges? Um, he was, uh, 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 he's a drummer, uh, who is, uh, actually very, uh, very accomplished. Um, he's, he's been with, uh, Mark Ford, actually. Uh, Sweet. um, he, yeah, he's been with John Hammond, who's one of my favorite blues artists. He's, uh, been with Mavis Staples. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's got quite the resume. Cool. Yeah. Like the T-bone nice. All right. Sorry. Yeah. I feel bad. I didn't know. I was like, um, 
Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so they, um, uh, they took that show out on the road and, uh, uh, and although I did see conflicting reports as to whether or not Hodges was on the tour, I'm pretty sure he was, but I did see conflicting reports. I'm trying to get it confirmed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but so I went to the show. Probably and, call him and ask him. Good, I could. Yeah, right. um, and and what was the opener at the Metro? And but admittedly, I was kind of there. I was kind of more interested in, in Mud Honey at the time. Um, I was just more familiar with Mudhoney's work. I wasn't familiar with all of Watt's repertoire and, 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 his, and his prior projects. And uh, and the tickets were like ten bucks. It was ridiculous. But to see what what Watt did uh, out there performing, contemplating the engine room in its entirety, like cemented his legacy in my mind. It was just this energy and intensity, kind of paired with this playfulness and. Uh, it was amazing. It almost stole the show. And I think a lot of people there would say that, that they put on, you know, that they could have headlined with all due respect to mud hunting. And I was totally psyched to see mud hunting as well. Sure. Um, but his set was absolutely, uh, uh, phenomenal. And he won me as like a fan for life as a result. Um, a quick note, others might, uh, um, were most likely introduced to the Minutemen through MTV's jackass, um, which used their uh, track Corona as its theme song. So if you can think uh, of uh, think of the uh, the Jackass uh, theme song that they would use for the bumper music as well, um, that's another man. When I heard Firehose gets, because um, I have to admit I, I'm not that familiar with Firehose. I you know I, if I'd heard it, I didn't remember it, and I listened to the first LP. And were, I mean, did they have a relationship with Husker Do? Because it sounds like they would be kindred spirits, is yes. my guess. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. All right. Yeah, that's what I thought of when I first heard. It. I was like, oh, this seems like this kind of you know, it sort of sounds like Husker Do a little bit. Yeah, yeah maybe same even, circle. even some early early replacements, you know, a little yep. bit too. Absolutely. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Absolutely. Good point. So, yeah. Um. Uh. But you know, some other notes I have here. You know, Watt is a man of themes. And, and to understand um, his themes is to really understand what he's all about. And um, it's it, whether it's the presence of his ba- just the very presence of his bass guitar. He calls it the thud staff, and it's it's kind of like an another character. It's it's almost like its own character. Um, his his hometown of San Pedro, California. He calls it Pedro, and you need to know that because he references it in a lot of songs. Um, if you go to his website. Uh, which he's managed himself since 1996, and he proudly puts that at the bottom. Um, <laughs> the very first link on the website is to the San Pedro Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> uh, he, he playfully name checks um, himself in his own songs, almost as referring to a comic strip version of himself. And uh, most poignantly, he's always referencing uh, his late bandmate and friend D. Boone in song on his website or annually on his birthday. He's always given D. Boone shout outs. All the albums are dedicated to D. Boone. Um, like I said, he's totally down to earth, maintains his own website, sends his own email newsletters, uh, which you can actually reply to. And he might just reply back. I think I've told the story before. Uh, one time right. I, I emailed Mike Watt about what I should do out in L.A. And he re- graciously replied back a few weeks later. Uh, with a rundown of the record stores and the hot dog joints I should hit up. Um, uh, he's always playing small joints around greater LA. Um, and uh, actually, uh, apropos here, he had one of the very first podcasts, uh, The Watt from Pedro Show, debuted on the internet in 2001. 
and uh, it was officially a podcast in 2006, uh, which is uh, a long time ago uh, in the podcast. He's a renaissance man. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, he's he's all for it. And, um, you know, other projects, um, uh, uh, he has a project called Dose with ex-Black Flag bassist uh, and also his ex-wife, Kira Rossler. uh, they formed the uh, they formed the band. It's they're both bass players. That's why it's called Dose. And uh, um, they were they got married and divorced, but they still kept they still release albums together. Um, also with Jay Mascus and the Fog. Uh, also with the Stooges. Uh, uh, went to Lollapalooza up there in Chicago and saw him play bass. Um, he took over for Ron Ashton. This is before Ron Ashton died. Um, Ron uh-huh. Ashton uh, really relinquished the bass duties to uh, to Watt. And uh, they, he record a couple studio albums with the Stooges when they kind of had their their rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and several other projects. Always a he played on. Uh, he played on um, on uh, Government Mules, The Deep End. He played on Effigy. He did. Yep. Yes. Uh, with Jerry Cantrell. Yeah. 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 And um, you know he's uh, a big. Uh, they were big. Minutemen were big CCR fans. Um, on the last Minutemen record, they did. Uh, Have you ever seen the rain? They cover that. Um, uh, so there's a bit of a connection there. Uh, selected discography. Uh, Minutemen. Double nickels on the dime. Three-way tie for last for my two favorites. Firehose. Album's called Ifen. And Flying the Flannel. Um, on one of those, you'll find Widespread Panics. Um, what Widespread, uh, Levi mentioned, Widespread Panic covered sometimes. And uh, since then, yeah, Ballhogger Tugboat uh, is uh, that album that, that introduced them to us and uh, contemplated in the engine room. Uh, so yeah, Mike Watt. Cool. Excellent work. Um, yeah, good, good job guys. Pat's high fives, a pluses. Um, yeah, really, really happy to induct another class of chew ins. Uh, want to remind everybody you can hear the previous inductions from 2015, 16 and 17, uh, at rock You can get every, every episode, uh, of uh, of the podcast there. Oh, a quick addition. Uh, sorry, I meant to mention it. Uh, we'll all p- be putting together uh, YouTube playlists of our inductees. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and we'll post. Absolutely. We'll embed those on the episode page, uh, cool. so you can check those out if you aren't familiar with these artists. Sorry, absolutely. Yeah, no problem. Hope everybody enjoys those. Uh, we'll be posting those as well, and you can you can check out all kinds of cool stuff at rockchew.com. Um, want to remind everybody that you can listen to us many different ways, as I mentioned on rockchew.com, uh, on iTunes, your favorite podcasting app. We're on all of those, um, as well as you can watch us on YouTube. You can subscribe to us there as well. And also you can follow us on the Twitter and the Instagram at rock That's in as in this is not your ordinary podcast. Uh, it's rock and roll Shinsu Chu. So until next time, we'll see you in episode 93. And I uh, hope everybody has a great start to the summer. Thank you so much. Congratulations to the 2008 Chewins. Peace.